Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and today on the podcast is something which I guess is a little bit different uh, and in some ways, and the intro is going to be a bit longer than normal for me to set the scene a little bit here. Uh, and so in this episode, and, and perhaps in the next few as well, uh, what we're going to be talking about really comes as a response to the unfolding of a number of stories, really, related to high-profile churches in our part of the world. And I think most of you probably know that we're here in New Zealand, and you may or may not be aware, I'm not sure how much you keep track of these things, uh, but of the happenings at a, at a, at a global megachurch based out of Sydney in Australia called Hillsong. Um, but recently, through a series of various investigations and leaked reports, have emerged these, these stories of abuse of power, of sexual harassment, of cover-ups of sexual assault at times, and, and so on. And, and ultimately, this has led to the resigning of the senior pastor there, Brian Houston, and then there's these ripple effects of this actually throughout the global Hillsong movement, and not just the global Hillsong movement actually, but through these ripple effects taking place through churches that in many respects aspire to be something like Hillsong or... Um, or are, or are something like Hillsong. And so this is a really important story, actually, to many people, not just people directly connected to the Hillsong movement. And and I think to many of the people who usually listen to this podcast, who are processing some some church-related um, stuff, right? Uh, and, and maybe that's because in many ways, Hillsong has been kind of the benchmark, the church that everyone else in the contemporary evangelical and Pentecostal and megachurch world is, is trying to be. And, and so what we're seeing unfold in that story is, is that there are problems endemic within the system of this kind of church that are in fact serious and, and are widespread. And so here in New Zealand, over the past few weeks, um, an investigative journalist, David Farrier, has detailed numerous accounts of trauma and abuse and bullying and coercion and manipulation, uh, the ignoring or covering up of claims of sexual assault, the signing of uh, non-disclosure agreements, and, and on and on the list goes within the largest church in New Zealand, which is uh, Arise Church. And all of this has has deeply moved me, I suppose. And if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you'll know that a number of the issues emerging in these stories are similar to some of the experiences that I've shared at various times here from my own journey out of megachurch life um, more than a decade ago now. And so I wanted to talk about this more directly, and a part of the reason for doing so is because the many people who are churned out the back of these systems uh, suffer, often suffer in silence, in isolation, uh, with ongoing, uh, some of them, you know, complex trauma, maybe even PTSD, uh, relational breakdown and isolation and so on. And so I think those of us who are able to need to speak more directly about this if we believe it can be helpful, and, and I hope it can. Uh, and what I wanted to do here is rather than record a sort of more carefully curated podcast episode about all of this, uh, my friend Shane Meyer Holt and I decided to record um, some conversations that are basically us processing all of this, responding to it, and trying to offer what we hope are some insights that help us all to understand how this can happen and also what we might be able to do about all of that. And so this is not a particularly refined, edited, or cleverly structured episode, but it's just us, uh, me and Shane, talking freeform about all of this. And you might remember, if you're a real long time in the shifter, you know, uh, that I had Shane on the podcast way back in episode three, in an episode titled Gurus and the Problem of Charisma. And it was all about the problem of, you know, leaders who become the sole voice within a community and who take, um, who become the kind of the anointed, untouchable ones. And so here we come, kind of full circle in many respects, back to this conversation again uh, quite some time later. And 
Although some of this conversation relates to what is happening within a couple of very specific churches here in Australasia, at least as a starting point, uh, the implications reach further than that into some of the churches that Shane and I have been involved in and I think relate to contemporary church culture all over the world. Some of you might have listened to a podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is is another account. It's about a, a powerful, charismatic, narcissistic, narcissistic leader, Mark Driscoll, running a mega church and crushing people's lives in the process. And and so th- the implications of the kind of conversations we're having here, I think, do resonate in a number of different spaces and contexts. So I hope that wherever you're listening, some of this is helpful to you or resonates for you. Now, Shane and I have been friends for about 14 years. I think we've figured out. And as you'll hear, uh, in our chat, we became friends while we were both still working within these kinds of churches. I was on staff at a mega church in Auckland called Life, and he was on staff in another church in another city that was kind of mega church aspirational, I guess. <laughs> you know, one of the bigger ones in the city, but but a smaller city and and sort of aspiring to be something like Life or Hillsong. And we both felt at this time when we met 14 or so years ago, like we were going insane. You know, we were we were trying to process our questions and doubts and concerns while we were still on staff and, and our friendship then came as a real liberating blessing for both of us, I think, uh, to find someone else who said, yeah, that's my experience too and what should we do about this? And in a sense, this is what I hope, I guess, that, that both David Farrier's work is doing, for example, around Arise, and what I hope some of what In the Shift accomplishes is that it's a space in which people can hear that actually they're not alone, they're not losing their way, they're not going crazy. Um, and so over the past 14 years, Shane and I have been processing together many of the things that are now emerging in, in, you know, in the many, many stories from traumatized and abused people in these churches. And we've, we've changed a lot personally over that time as we've managed to extricate ourselves from that way of seeing and believing and leading and from those institutions and to find some very, very different ways of going about things. And Shane and I are both involved in leading faith communities in the present in totally different contexts and having made very significant changes in our approach to ministry and to leadership. And so... We also don't come at this conversation as people who, I don't know, hate the church or something like that. <laughs> um, I don't know that anyone's really coming at the conversation from that perspective necessarily, but I don't blame those who feel like that. They have many valid reasons, I think, to hate the church, especially if they've been abused and traumatized in those spaces. So um, so we're both still involved in, in kind of church leadership in, in, in smaller faith communities, trying to find different ways of being and leading and connecting and relating and I also want to say that we come in this conversation, as you'll hear, as people who were both recipients and participators in the system. You know, we were both on staff and operated as the system required us to, kind of thinking we were doing good, but building systems that we realized over time were actually creating harm. And then we're also kind of recipients of some of that harm. And so, and look, all of this is not to say, and this is the kind of the qualifier, I guess I just want to get out of the way. I'm not saying that no good happens in these spaces. I'm not saying that. Um, but these churches are quite capable and indeed do shout from the rooftops the good that they do. So this episode is is not going to be a time to provide sort of balanced commentary of all sides. Um, There's plenty of spaces in which the good is proclaimed. So we want to here provide some context and voice for those who have experienced instead the pain, the trauma, and the hurt as a result of this kind of church life. I think over the past more than a decade, both Shane and I have been careful how we've talked about this at times, in public especially, for a, for a multitude of reasons. Shane has a family member who's on staff at a rise in the present moment. 
And I still have many relationships, friendships, and connections to those in my old church uh, life as well. And so this is kind of difficult but necessary territory. We must be able to talk about these things, even when it's hard. So as I say, we were both participators and recipients of harmful ways of going about church culture and leadership and ministry. It has been 12 years or more since I left that church. And I still have (laughs) bad dreams and nightmares. I still wake up in the middle of the night and sweats with my heart racing as I'm being haunted by the things that were said and done to me along the way, or like I've suddenly been thrust back into that environment uh, and all of those pressures are caving in on me. Still now, even as someone who's involved in church ministry, if I think about going into a church service with like flashing lights and smoke machines and large crowds, I feel this tightness rise in my chest and I start to get anxious and a lump in my throat. So these feelings are real and they do linger, even with lots of processing. My body knows that it doesn't want to go back there. And, and I don't say this to make myself out to be the worst victim at all, but more to say that I know at least some of what it is to process out of this kind of system. And it's hard. And those who do it are brave. And those who are speaking up right now are also really brave. And so, yeah. Shane and I um, recorded this conversation last week, actually, as the first reports um, were coming to light out of, in particular, the Arise story with David Farrier. And so at times we laugh a fair bit because that's sometimes how you kind of make sense of the absurdity of it and also some of, you know, some of the, the, the pain of it. Um, but also at that stage, some of the stories about the covering up of sexual assault and, and stuff like that hadn't been published. So um, sometimes our lighthearted tone you know, the, in this conversation is not meant to diminish the seriousness of, of these experiences. Um, having said all of that, if you, if you listen along and you want to get in touch with Shane and I, either to share your stories and experiences or to ask questions or to offer comment or to seek support or to suggest things that need to be talked about, you can email us at feedback at intheshift.com and we'd love to hear from you um, if you feel like that's something that would be good for you to do. I should also uh, perhaps say this is quite a long conversation, so if you need to break it up into chunks to listen to, you're more than welcome. So with all of that said... Here's Shane and I beginning the process of working through our responses to all of this. This is episode 55 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Uh, So I was thinking about... When we met, which would have been... Oh, you shouldn't have. I, yep, no, I saw you across the room. <laughs> you, were, you were looking beautiful. Um, I think I was actually sitting at the back of a classroom and you thought I was being very irreverent. Well, that's true. We were both studying, although I was studying. It must be said at a higher level than you. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, but we were, we were, um, yes, we, I think we met in a classroom, but I don't think we became friends really there yet. No. We first met there. That would have been what, 2008, 2009? I have no timeline in my life. So around 2008, 2009, sometime around there. Um, 2008, I got married and you definitely weren't invited. So I was, and I'm still upset about that. We were. I may not have known you at the time, but as (laughs) a very dear friend now, it's me that I wasn't there. Um, so let's, uh, you know, thinking about this, this, when our lives kind of intersected and, 
and we kept bumping into each other sort of on a few occasions and then ended up having some conversations and we were like, oh, here's a person who understands me. Let's call it a crossroads. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What do you remember kind of of that time and and the time when we were, when we were sort of, when we found each other, Shane? We found each other. Yeah. Well, it was was interesting because um, we, my church really wanted to be your church. Right. And my church had been through a few renditions from a kind of community Pentecostal church, very community focused into a very, very intense revival focused church. Uh, and that didn't really uh, bear the desired fruits. And so we wanted to become, you know, an excellence kind of aspiring mega church church in a much smaller city than yours. And, and, and so I knew of you because I, of course, had seen you tinkling the ivories at many a conference. Uh, I could play I could play a minor chord behind an offering talk or, or behind you, a salvation you, altar call. Really got yeah, the people going. You, you, you really drew the money out of my wallet with your uh, <laughs> with your E minor. Uh, I don't know what that is. So. That was excellent musical knowledge. Thank you. Good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so and so we. It's always interesting when you have kind of internal questions uh, about the thing that you are participating in because you meet other people and you play a little bit of a game trying to find out where they're at with uh, with their church and, and, and their relationship to it. And I think pretty quickly we both worked out that while we were both heavily invested in the thing that we had given so much of our lives to, uh, we had some big questions about that, and we were probably both a little bit down that journey by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it was—I just remember feeling uh, incredibly excited and comfortable um, talking to you, and having the sense that, oh, finally, someone else who might actually get it, and mm-hmm. that was yeah, that was a, a huge relief. Yeah, and it turns out that we actually found a bunch of us in a, in a similar place from different contexts um, who all kind of wanted to chat through some of this stuff together. But but when you – I had a, an, another friend in a similar place in the same organisation, and uh, so I was kind of lucky in that sense. But it, it's really easy to think that you're the crazy one, uh, that you're the one – you're the only person in this whole place that – is asking these questions mm. and sort of find other kind of kindred spirits is quite nice. Yes. Well, I remember, yeah, the same the same feeling. You kind of like, I think we used to sort of joke with each other, like the, the, just the feeling of am I, am, I, am I going mad? Like am I, <laughs> yeah. am I going insane here? Because yeah. I'm... And possibly so is the answer to that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's not like, no, of course not. It's like possibly... Yeah. Um, possibly I'm totally losing my mind or I'm totally losing my way or... or, mm-hmm. or and, and, and you're arguing with yourself as part of the problem because I think it's perhaps important context to say we both we both loved at various stages the places that we were in the mm. churches and we're mm. heavily invested mm. in them. I actually came, I come from kind of brethren and Baptist stock. Uh, I came into Pentecostalism very suspicious and sceptical um, because of the background that I had and didn't want to get caught up in the hype and didn't want to, you know, like get carried away and wanted to think a little bit more on all those things. And I remember kind of going to, you know, see, um, going to conferences and things like that and saying, you know, like, oh, you know, this is not for me and it's all, it's all just hype. But then 
in the process, actually really falling in love with some of that excitement and, and really falling in love with some of the things that I saw happening. I became a youth pastor in that context and went through the experience of having a youth group that was teeny tiny and insignificant and, you know, all of those things. And then it becoming bigger and exciting and being involved in um, leading leading that thing. And I, like part of when you're asking those questions, part of the, the problem is you're arguing with yourself mm. because you're mm. so heavily invested in it and you love this thing so much, even if you begin to have big questions about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, um, you've given your, in many respects, like your life to it. And uh, most of your, well, this was certainly the case for me. So I had grown up in a kind of more small community town, you know, Pentecostalism, and then come to Auckland. And then now I was in this big, huge, exciting thing that was like almost overwhelmingly exciting when I first started going. I was like, oh my, you know, because I, as a, as a kind of a younger, small town Pentecostal kid, I just sort of dreamed of, of, of the days when church would be this amazing thing. I mean, even just when you're getting beaten up at school, just just having a church that you're not embarrassed by. Yeah, and I, sure. I can yeah. think about the churches that I was in, and I certainly wouldn't be embarrassed by them now. But at the time, like because of the social credit, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah, even even having a church that you know that, that might give you something in terms of mm. social credit rather than taking it away, yes. that's very exciting. <laughs> yes, uh... not that we both weren't really cool. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's interesting even to think about like being cool because I think like I came through school um, as relatively uncool. Um, by the sort of end of school, things had evened out a little bit. Yes. I know, hard to believe, isn't it? Um, but, uh, but I, you know, came to and, – and by the end of school was kind of – I was very insecure. Um, kind of the end of school was a bit better than the beginning of it. But – came into this church environment where I slowly became somebody mm-hmm. and to be in this environment where I was I was somebody is, is, mm-hmm. is very in, in the mix with things that you care about yeah and then building relationships with people that you come to love mm-hmm. um, there's a lot about it that you love yeah and, and, lot- and they're also entangled so even yeah. with that I also had a really rough time at school and I remember Youth group being the one safe place for me. Like it was the place where I was mm. affirmed and kind things were spoken mm. to me. All this beautiful, amazing stuff going on in there that's really good and ego and power and all of those things as well. And so it's never that clean cut. Like it's interesting watching the commentary around the stuff that's coming out at the moment and there's such a polarisation in terms of people's perspectives on it and some people can't see how you couldn't see through it in the first place. But for mm-hmm. lots of us, we couldn't see through it for quite some time because the initial experiences were so rich and so deep and so good and found founded on some really beautiful and kind things. Yeah, and I guess that, you know, what you end up with is people having very, very different experiences of the same place. Yeah. Um, and And sometimes... I mean, that happens in all sorts of different directions. Sometimes when you're on the outside initially, it's amazing. Like mm. as in you've come into this thing mm. and you kind of, you work your way towards the center if you like and things kind of can feel more and more amazing as you work your way towards the center. Um, 
And depending on how the journey towards the center goes, probably maybe depends on what your experience of it is. If you become one of the preferred ones or one of the ones who succeeds or one of the ones who's doing really well, then that experience can be positive all the way through. It can feel that way. Yeah. Um, but if you're one of the ones who's, as they go through to the center, um, you're not quite up to it in this way or, whoopsie, you thought the wrong thing about that. Oh, you said the wrong thing there or you, you asked that question when you really shouldn't have. Uh, then that journey or, towards, or even just that you don't have the kinds of things to offer. Yeah, that are, yeah, that are valued in that context. You know. So, what kinds of things did you did you need to have to offer? Um, I mean, I think certainly, uh, like, <laughs> I mean, like all the classic quote unquote leadership things, right? Like <laughs> charisma and passion, and you know, being white, <laughs> <laughs> being, being white and straight, and male preferably. Uh, all of all of all of that kind of stuff, being um, boundless amounts of energy, being able-bodied, mm. uh, all of all of those kinds of things, being uh, artic- articulate, having the capacity to uh, think enough to um, be able to say things that sound profound, but not think too much. <laughs> you actually ask questions about what they mean. Uh, <laughs> a, a combo of those kinds of, kinds of things, and then just boundless loyalty and enthusiasm. One of yeah. the things I worked out in this journey is that I'm a I'm a fiercely loyal person, um, and that has that can be an excellent trait, and that can be a really really dangerous one because mm. I'm also quite a cynic too. But often my loyalty trumped my cynicism, mm. and that certainly helped me maintain a place within the power structure. Yeah, and so so how if you think about your own experience back then, kind of around the time that we were meeting and so on. How, if you were to think about like how long a process was it from, like, can you think about it in those terms? Like, how, how long yeah, it took you to, yeah, to go from yeah. more serious? Because I remember, I remember when I was quite young, having, sometimes having questions come to the surface and then sort of burying them down, but they weren't, they never lingered for too long because I didn't, either didn't allow them to or I had another excellent altar call and someone prayed for me and I felt much better about my life. Yeah. Um, but later on, the questions started emerging in a way that, that were perhaps more serious. Do you, do you have a sense of how long you sat in that place where you're like actually quite uncomfortable with some of what's happening but also still staying loyal and, and sticking yeah. it out? Yeah. I think it's more that I vacillated in and out. And mm. so I, 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 I started um, – there were things I was uncomfortable with, as I said, when I came into that context and then they became familiar and I kind of gained – a sense of identity and a sense of place and then a sense of power. And then there would be things that made me uncomfortable again and I would struggle with that and then I would say good things happen. And so I'd go, well, you know, these beautiful and amazing things are happening and is it that bad or um, can we change it from the inside? And that was a lot of what I think I ended up trying to do is going, I don't like this but it doesn't have to be this way. Can't we have, can't we have both and can't we change it from the inside? And then you don't always realize how much you uh, are actually adapting to it rather than seeing it change. Mm. And, and again, so much of it isn't that black and white. So we, again, our youth group kind of, I I looked after a bunch of 11 and 12 year olds and this thing just over a couple of years just exploded. It just uh, metaphorically, fortunately in this case, (laughs) but it, um, it, it, it grew and grew and that was really, really exciting. And it wasn't just exciting, but we were actually, you know, we were these like churchy white kids 
And then suddenly we got um, a huge influx of people from a different social class than us, much lower socioeconomic. And we really felt like we were, you know, these wonderful white saviors that were really saving people and, mm. and, and turning their lives around and helping them. And, 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 and to some degree we were. We were able to be a place of stability and profound kindness and love and all of these things. We were woefully ill-equipped for the things that we uh, were uh, trying to address or trying to deal with at the time. But in that process, a lot of the kind of doubts were suppressed because of the importance of what we were doing, the excitement of what we were doing. And so when you thought, oh, am I just doing this for the power? Am I just doing this, this for the excitement? Then you could flip back and go, no, no, no. There are lives being changed and we're reaching people and uh, we couldn't abandon these kids. You know, they they really need us now. And so it's always this mixed bag. And I remember a couple of kind of key, mo- key moments. I remember going to my local Christian bookstore and the lady at the counter, uh, <laughs> we were kind of obviously the, growing church in town at the time and the big youth group at town, in town at the time. And I didn't know that she knew me, but I purchased a book, probably a leadership book, because that was all we were really encouraged to lead, to, to read. See, I can't even say read. That's how <laughs> leadership I am. Um, yeah, six principles of um, abusing power or something. And and the lady at the, the lady at the counter said, here you go, $13.99. And she was quiet for a bit and then she said, it's not all about numbers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, uh, no, no, we know that. And then I went away and then told someone back at the church office and they were like, this, how rude, how dare she? Because we knew it wasn't about numbers. We were just trying to help as many people as we could. And we were helping people. And I still remember thinking on that afterwards and going, I wonder why she had that, that impulse. We, we all know it's not about numbers. She must just be jealous or something. But then later on, as I reflected on some of our processes, realizing how much this infinite growth machine um, that had to keep on growing, we, we, or at least had to keep that large because we couldn't let people down. We were, we were the ones saving. We were the ones helping. We were the ones doing the significant thing. And then wouldn't it be better if it was just a bit bigger and we could help more people? Yeah. And then you suddenly realize what you are doing to keep that going mm. um i feel like i'm fortunate enough that i asked these questions early enough and was blessed by a uh multi-pronged life breakdown <laughs> <laughs> theologically physically relationally all all kinds of things all at once mental health all at once and my life in my mid-20s came to a grinding halt all while still trying to be an excellent and thriving youth pastor mm-hmm. of course uh, but it was that rupture. It was that sense of being out of control and actually not of life not getting better and better like it was supposed to. That gave me the space to go. Wait a minute. This whole this whole thing might not be good. I, what I'm doing, what I'm encouraging, um, while there are good elements to it, maybe some of these things aren't that good either. Maybe the fact that I'm you know out six nights a week <laughs> uh, and then feeling bad for having a night off. Uh, Maybe maybe my body can't sustain that, mm. you know. In, in in my particular culture and my context, which shares a lot with yours, we were told your body was a production machine and an enemy, and so it was important that you ignored what your body told you, um, because it was just there to 
produce more stuff and to do more things for Jesus. Uh, and fortunately, mine broke down at one point and so did my brain, my poor brain and emotional nervous system, uh, and long enough for me to actually reflect on that stuff. Mm. I remember being um, sat down with, with one of my um, superiors uh, <laughs> and... Uh, His eye. And he, <laughs> under his eye, yes, indeed. Uh, he, um, he was sharing with me the, the, the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mm. And, uh, and, the, and the surrounding context, of course. Yes, of course, he dove deep into the context of the uh, Philippi and the uh, time when, which the Apostle Paul was writing. Um, no, no, he said, that means that you don't ever have to say no because the Bible says you can do all things. So mm. what I do in my life is I just say yes to everything all the time. And I just, someone says, here, more work. I say, yep, I can do all things. And, He's uh, going straight to the top, Michael. <laughs> he was, well, he was going straight to the top until he, you know, burnt out and imploded himself um, eventually. Mm. But, um, yes, <laughs> that kind of mentality of, of um, your body as a, Capacity, right, was a big word. Huge. I think still is, I'm sure, in those in those systems. Um, do you have the capacity? It was one of the leadership questions that would sort of get asked of you before you were, you know, made a leader in my context. Or not, not that it would necessarily be asked of you verbally, but that people would be asking about you before they appointed you to a particular position. Does Do they have the capacity and then if you start to struggle or say, I don't know that I can go out again tonight. This is my 10th meeting for the week and I'm still trying to work at Genesis Research um, in my job in science. Uh, <laughs> they're like, no, you need to be there. This is just a capacity issue. You just need to grow your capacity. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was um, like so simple and so effective at just being like, oh, well, I don't want to have a low capacity because that will limit my the possibilities for me in this space that yeah. will mean I can't advance, I can't yeah. maybe do the things that I want to do. or uh, And those things run in stereo, right? Because you go, it's not just about, you don't actually think out loud my advance and my, mm. no, mm-hmm. you say, you know, the good that I can do and your shadow side says, and my advance. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> my capacity yeah. to minister and reach people and love Jesus and serve God and <laughs> and have a little bit more power. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's why you can end up on a stage in front of people feeling incredibly special about being on that stage and give an amazing talk about humility. Because mm. um, mm. on one level you can, and, and I remember doing that, I remember talking about humility in this context in front of these people and, and you know, I genuinely believed in what I was talking about. Mm. But my shadow side was like, isn't this kind of awesome? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These people are yeah. loving what I have to say. Um, so, so maybe let's talk about uh, talk about that because I think that this is kind of at the root of it for us in terms of we probably like I remember reaching a point where I went, we are doing more harm than good, mm-hmm. or the good that we are doing cannot justify what we are needing to do to do it. Um, and that sense of like the systemic is never really talked about in mm. these contexts of there's a sense in which the ends justifies the means that growing a great church 
changing the nation, shaking the planet, doing whatever it is that you are doing that is great and big, and the whole world will wake up and recognise one day what we're doing and how amazing it is. And then one day you leave the place and you go, no one had any idea <laughs> about us, which is very embarrassing. <laughs> we're very important and great things are happening. Uh, it's only really other churches uh, <laughs> that really care. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that sense of that sense of means to an end. That sense of look at look at all the good we're doing, and so um, it's it's okay, isn't it? It's yeah. like okay that that um, and yeah, the 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 lack of ability to say what is what is the structure actually doing to people. So because we could look at people's lives being changed, however we do, and there are all sorts of ways to kind of quantify that and statistics mm. and spreadsheets that were that were calculated to say how many people made. Decisions for Christ, or uh, you know, how many people did we convert? That we'll never see, that we'll never see again, <laughs> <laughs> or that we saw last week. Um, <laughs> you know, so there, there were ways of kind of quantifying, or this many people came to these conferences, or, or, or whatever it was that we were a part of. Um, and so you could kind of look at all the good, or this community project that we did, mm. uh, and and it sort of didn't matter in many respects how we treated people along the way. Yeah, sort of. It did on a surface level, but yeah. not in real terms. So yeah. like if someone asked you that, does it matter how we treat people along the way? You'd be like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but in real terms, you're like, no, you've just got to suffer a bit more because this is for the, for the good of the cause. And, and part of it is who you treat how. Like because mm. obviously the people that you are trying to reach, you treat really, really well. The people that um, uh, have the capacity to fund things, you treat really, really well. It's the insiders, the closer you get to the inside, that you can treat worse and worse or justify mm. uh, the fact that they are, you know, <laughs> cannon fodder of some form, you know, that they they are in it with you and therefore you can kind of treat them like an extension of your own body. Yeah. And if you push yourself harder, you can push them harder. And, and you know, nothing can, can't be fixed with, you know, a good attitude. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, your attitude determines your altitude. So I've, I've heard, I've heard this. Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> on the ground, that explains anything about my attitude. And so, yeah, yeah you find yourself like um, exhausted, worn out, with a bunch of questions, going, "Oh man," and then, and then you look at someone over there, and you think, "But look how much they've changed." Or you go into that meeting, and you have that experience, and the big chorus hits and the hands go to the ceiling and um, yeah. in my in my case very short arms so they didn't reach very high but uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> they, and you, you have this kind of euphoric moment or you look around and you're like well look at this this is kind of amazing and so therefore don't pay attention to all of those other feelings all of those other questions um, mm. yeah yeah I think we've talked before about the <laughs> idea of um you know, the, the promised land in the book of Joshua, the idea that, you know, um, if you read, if you've dusted off your Bible in the last 30 years, there's a, a book called Joshua in there. And, you know, the Israelites have promised it by God. And so they have to go and, you know, take the land. And there might be a few Canaanites there <laughs> who <laughs> get slaughtered in the process. But, you know, that's just collateral damage for the good things that God is doing. Uh, and if you read, you know, um, Native American or Latin American um Indigenous people, First Nations people, reflect on that very passage in that book. Um, they feel, as people who have been conquered and colonised, feel differently <laughs> about uh, the subhumanness and legitimization of 
the violence against those people and, and whether it's worth it for Israel to receive their promised land uh, by, by the sword. And, and that kind of theme really does begin to come through in some of this stuff of, you know, as long as the cause, as long as the cause is big enough and great enough and blessed enough and ordained by God, God told us we're going to take this nation, God told us we're going to do this thing, then you can kind of deal with a lot of bloodshed along the way, and mm. particularly if you can minimise it, particularly if you can make it. Um, we, we've talked, you know, recently about the, the use of the word um, hurt, you know, mm. that there are, there are hurt people. And, you know, sometimes people get hurt in churches and you'll never, you know, I've been hurt in churches and mm. never go to a church where you don't get hurt and you just have to, you know, sometimes we just need to forgive and, you know, we need to deal with our hurt or... Yeah, because there's no, look, there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? There's, so there's, there's no such thing as a perfect, yeah. perfect church. You'll always yeah. get hurt when you're in community and relationship That's with people right. at some yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can say the same thing about nations. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we hope that some nations aren't committing genocide. Mm. And there's a difference between the ones that aren't and the ones that are. Mm. And, 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 and same with, with churches that we use hurt to um, minimise, mm. the, the concept of hurt to minimise what is often damage and harm um, and systemic damage and harm. So it's not like one person just got their tr- toe trod on accidentally um, or that someone under pressure spoke badly to someone it's that these patterns replicate themselves Mm. uh, and there's an entire system that is not just hurting people's feelings but actually leaving them irreparably damaged and harmed to do really really good things it's pushing people's bodies to places um, that they shouldn't go to it's pushing people's emotional systems to places it's using coercion and emotional violence and control um, to keep people in a place. It's, it's um, yeah, these, these things that leave lasting impacts on people aren't just hurt and they're not just singular. They are often in these places, they are systemic. And the way, there are, there are ways of not letting these stories come out mm-hmm. yeah it's um the the kind of the get out of jail free kind of phrases that that mm. i think um get used you know like there's no perfect church or everyone everyone gets hurt at some point um you know it can be so effective because the lines in many respects are really blurry at times yeah. so when does a volunteer stop willingly volunteering Yes. And get coerced into volunteering. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, um, when when do these things kind of cross over? But, and yet there is a difference. And yes. it's like saying, oh, well, look, all, all political parties have their problems. But, you know, yes. so the Nazis just had a few sort of, you know, <laughs> they just yeah. had some problems. But all political parties have problems. You know, it's like, okay, well, no, there's, there's Not- at some point we have to be able to say there's yeah systemic abuse happening within this context, or there's 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 problems that are rife, and if they are yeah coming coming out in the kind of volume that we're seeing at the moment, for example, in relation to some of the big churches like the Hillsongs, the Arise, the yeah. you know and the and the experiences that are coming to the surface, and and that if we're honest, we could have told you at any stage in the last ten years that there were hundreds of those stories, yeah, there right thousands yeah. of those stories. Uh, I, I but, work in a context yeah. now where a lot of our people have come from places mm. um, 
from 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 these contexts and i sit weekly with people who share these stories and they're not they're not one offs what's interesting in sitting to, with people telling them for the first time a is how scared they are mm. uh, the climate of fear about even telling their story as if they are somehow letting someone down or that there might be backlash and retribution, which there is. <laughs> I think at different stages, both of us have uh, had people try to get us fired mm. <laughs> and we've crossed them the wrong way. Indeed. Um, <laughs> is it the same person who's tried to get us both fired? <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's, there's legitimate fear there. Um, but there's also the sense of betrayal when people share these stories too yeah. of going, I know I'm not supposed to think about this thing that is so good. Uh, and this thing that everyone says, wow, you're a part of that. That's so wonderful and amazing. Mm. And when your experience is it's not, then that's, uh, then, then, then that's incredibly confusing. But along with that, because of the way we use hurt um, and, the, and the language of hurt, people share these things and try and minimize it as they go because they don't want you to jump the table and go, oh, well, <laughs> this, that's not really that bad, is it? Or surely that just sounds like a mistake or, you know, what are you getting all upset about? Yeah. When one of the reasons we use the word hurt is because if it's found out to be true that we've been hurt, the person that hurt you is a hurter. If we use the word abuse, then the person who did this to you is an abuser. And the people who hold power in these organisations can't be abusers, can they? Mm. Well, the answer is yes, they can. But we are so used to protecting and not speaking against. I mean, I think one of the greatest things that fuels this is, is a sense of an honour culture where honour, I mean, of, we have both sat in sermons <laughs> oh, where God. people have said, you know, if you, even if you found, I've heard a uh, prominent, I'm in Melbourne now, a prominent Melbourne pastor when I was back in New Zealand say, even if you know, even if you, if you, even if you catch your pastor doing something sinful, you don't tell anyone, you pray about it because that is not your domain. I mean, if that person isn't abusing people, then I'll be very, very surprised yeah. and can come out with that. But the idea that, um, that, you know, critique shouldn't go up the hierarchies, it should only go down. Mm. The idea that uh, that essentially all behaviour is legitimised by people's positions. Uh, the idea that, uh, idea even, I mean, I saw this quoted this week in a, I think it might have, may have even been a press statement <laughs> about how, you know, we, you know, we, we, we praise publicly and, you know, and address things privately. Uh, that don't acknowledge the power dynamics of the fact that, you know, you can praise publicly, uh, but when you are sat in a room with a very, very scary and powerful person who you have seen um, yell at people, uh, coerce people, marginalise people, fire people, sideline people, um, send the attack dogs on, and you sit and you want to raise the specific, specific issue that you have, not only are you not allowed to call their behaviour abusive because you just carry a hurt, but also the power, power dynamics mean that you, um, the, the chances of you feeling comfortable enough to actually, or confident that you're going to get, they're going to be believed or get an, a response are incredibly minimal. Yeah, so, you know, um, all of this kind of speaks to 
why these stories all sit under the surface. So that, yeah, so that by the time you sit across the table with someone in an entirely different context, they're still terrified of sharing that story. Mm. Um, mm. And, and, you know, there's all the relational implications of what it will mean for essentially often in these spaces that the, that the church world becomes your entire world. I think megachurches are kind of designed to do that. They become yep. your whole world, which means all of your relationships and friendships and are, are, yep. are enmeshed in there. Mm. So to to speak and, out. And also your fidelity, they're set against each other. And yes. so yeah, yeah, yeah. your fidelity is first and foremost to the church yeah. and then everything else, um, that you're slowly distanced from your family. Like, yeah. you know, all those stories coming out of, you know, I was told, you know, my family weren't believers or they weren't part of the church or they didn't understand mm. that you know, what they really should be doing is listening to the inside authority. Yeah, and, and I think, again, from the outside or for people who haven't had this kind of experience, maybe it's hard to hard to understand or hard to make sense of why you would tolerate. Yeah. Now, I remember recounting stories of some, of you know, to, to a friend of mine about some things that have been said and done to me. And they were like, where was your sense of, like, just, why didn't you just, where was your dignity? Why didn't you just stand up and say, you can't talk to me like that? Um, I heard about dignity over years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dignity? I don't have any dignity. Um, <laughs> my dignity is is uh, is committed to the cause. Um, it left me. Uh, you know, like the, the sort of, it's almost unbelievable that someone would tolerate that level of coercion and manipulation and, and abuse. Mm. And yet when you're inside those those spaces that's that's very much what happens and it's all the, it's so much of it is subtle occasionally it's it's full frontal assault yes. isn't you know yeah. something shocking or yeah. or whatever but usually those tactics aren't used um, mm. because they're not the most effective and mm. they're more we can only use them so often and you can only use them so often so it's often it's all it's the it's the death by a thousand cuts that yeah. just wear away at you over time i remember um there was a real emphasis in our church on, <laughs> well, I think there had been people trying to raise issues and so they wanted to develop a real open um, culture where we could have ability to question the the leadership. And this was on staff. And so they said, so we're going to have just a free Q&A time. Ask us anything you like, absolutely anything. Open book. We want to be able to be share and be honest with you. Um, so... Let's have a question time. Just remember before you ask your questions that your question locates your heart, um, <laughs> which essentially <laughs> means um, what kind of question you ask will tell us a lot about what's actually going on for you and what kind of person you are and whether you're up to it or not. Mm. And and so, you know, <laughs> this very open kind of question time suddenly <laughs> became people going, um, my question is how can, how can we be even more excellent? Um, well, my question is what, what, what more should I do? Should I take on more? (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone everyone suddenly was made uh, very aware that the kinds of question that they asked was going to determine how they were seen. And so it's, it's like a little thing in the moment. And yet it's a very, it's just another layer of very powerful tools that essentially manage dissent, right? Manage people's concerns and make sure they stay buried. Uh, my, you can't see because I, I'm on Zoom, but uh, for you podcast listeners, Michael uh, is waving his arms around a lot at the moment, which is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is exactly how I feel about it because of this idea of cross pressures that it doesn't actually just take one strong thing to uh, suppress dissent and critique. 
uh, one strong thing will never work. Mm. It's too obvious and can be too easily broken. And different personalities will respond to it differently and will have great power over some and not over other others. Um, uh, that, that, that little bell sound is just Rory the cat coming through. Is it? Oh, so passionate about this. <laughs> um, he may have thought I needed help with all the arm moving. Uh, but but this idea of cross-pressures, of that, that there's multi-pronged strategies and some of them are kind and some of them are really, really nasty and we all know all of them exist. So some of them are ideas like you want to be, you want to remain an insider. You want to stay, sorry, I'm just going to move Rory out. <laughs> One moment. <laughs> Come on, Rory. Can't you see we're having a serious conversation? Yeah, so, so you know, it, it might be that, you know, you want to remain an insider and you want to, you know, ask some questions, but you don't want to look, you don't want to actually, you know, tear anyone down. And so because of that, you suppress dissent. You, it might be that you know that you don't want to become one of those people because yeah. there's a fortress mentality around a lot of these institutions of this us and them. There are the people who are jealous of us, who don't like what we're doing because they don't understand or because we're in their territory and they don't like it or, you know, there are people out there in the world and they don't understand what the powerful move of God that's happening. Um, and so you want to become stay one of them. And we all know how people are talked about who have become one of them. You know, they yes. fell away or they let their heart get bitter or they allowed themselves to be hurt and so they miss out on all of this good stuff. And then there's you know, more um, insidious background things like in some of these stories that come out this week where people know that they will be cut off from community completely, that people will be warned against them, that they um, will, that people will harass, harass them and send them text messages and, and horrible phone calls, that all of these things together, mm. um, some of it carrot and some of it stick um, and often with insidious spiritual authority, this idea that, you know, this is the blessed man of God and, you know, don't speak against them, otherwise bears will come out of the woods and eat you, like with whoever it was. Um, <laughs> okay, that's, so for those people who are like, that's a random reference. <laughs> um, I just, just clarify that there is a story in the Old Testament about a prophet who uh, gets mocked by these young... It's it's one of the sort of weirdest stories in the Bible, and there are a few. Um, he gets getting mocked by these young people, and they call him Baldy Baldy. I believe that's the uh, thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so a bear comes out of the woods and, and mauls them all. <laughs> anyway. A bear, bear is sent by God, we can only assume. Of course. God we love. And that's another example of why you shouldn't say anything to the Lord's anointed one. Don't touch God's anointed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Shane. I was just uh, just translating <laughs> that for people who might not have the beer story. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, yeah. So 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 some of it's carrot and some of it sticks. Some of it's there will be repercussions, um, and some of them are kind of <laughs> you know different forms of violence, and some of them are just lost opportunity. And so you really need to go all in. I think Frosty and I have had this conversation recently about how uh, how many people we know who just implicitly know it's easier to move city than to leave a church. Yeah. And so if you want to avoid, if you want to leave the church because you've finally had enough and you can't witness it any longer or you've been so brutalized or whatever it is, it's much, e much easier than saying, you know, 
I don't like some of these things and I'm going to go somewhere else or do something different. Uh, it's actually easier to say, I got a job <laughs> in a different city yeah. and to actually physically move yeah. uh, because it's a, a lot less hassle. Many uh, people do this. Yes. Many people do yes. this. In fact, go through your Rolodex <laughs> and see who's moved in the last <laughs> You might know some of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um... It's it's quite extraordinary that that you know, and I think, um, obviously, you know, a lot of these churches rely a lot on young people. I think, mm. um, perhaps because young people are have lots of those things we were talking about earlier: um, energy, mm. um, loyalty, mm. and uh, more easily led, perhaps yep. eager to please, eager to please. Um, the the more easily manipulated, I think, or coerced or controlled by some of this stuff. But but funnily enough, actually, as you you know, these these things also have an impact on on growing adults too. Mm-hmm. This is not something that only affects kind of your vulnerable seventeen year old person. Yeah. Um, and it's I think you know the dynamics of power, which we've talked about lately on the podcast. Um, you know, uh, are all through society. In all sorts of different spheres, and and what we see is that power, even though in on one level it's sort of constructed, it's kind of not real on one level, mm. in the sense that very seldom is that person going to kill you, or violently assault you. Right? It's not usually the way power is used, um, but that power is very real nonetheless, and and so you can find yourself as a as a grown person, um, mm. cowering yeah. under and suffering under the, the the abuse of people with power above you, who kind of who it feels like hold your life in their hands. Yeah, yeah, and and, and the the power of a large group of people um, mm. all mm. under the system. So I actually, when I moved to Melbourne, I decided to get out of church for a long, long time, um, and part of the part of why was because I felt so institutionalized. I felt like my entire world was church. I didn't really understand the world outside of it. This can't be healthy, can it? (laughs) Uh, And I was correct. It wasn't very healthy because you lose perspective when Mm. all you have is is this one thing. That mean, there's an interesting thing about some of the stuff coming out of the general public going like, what the heck are they? How can anyone believe this? This is straight up outright manipulation. You can't talk about money like this. How can people believe these things and going like, oh, I understand how people can believe, believe these things because I've been inside it. And I also hold the other perspective of going, how did I ever believe those things? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I actually entered into the world of HOSPO, which in Melbourne has its own kind of little power dynamics and, and uh, street cred and all of those things and ended up in a very dysfunctional company company with a very abusive owner who ran things in a very, very similar way to a megachurch pastor mm. who had a public face which was really kind and lovely but would walk into the store uh, when uh, not many customers were around and just start yelling randomly at people. So your direct manager above you would start yelling randomly at people and then there would be this uh, environment of coercion and fear where we had to um, you know, we weren't allowed to go to the toilet when we needed to until someone got a kidney infection <laughs> and the doctor said, you need to tell your boss you have to go to the toilet more often. Mm. Uh, but these dynamics uh, play out in all kinds mm. of organisations and often it's 
the fact that you are immersed in an environment where everyone else is going along with it that makes it so difficult to actually yeah. recognize and break it. Yeah. Uh, and particularly when there's the spiritual authority stuff of going, this is, we're serving God's person doing God's thing. Yes. And surely this person can't be bad. Now, categorically, you and I, Michael, have been in enough uh, green rooms and backstages and things like this to know that there are some truly terrible humans um, who are beloved <laughs> by the communities that worship them, and they are categorically bad people mm. who do bad things. Um, and it's until you see it from the outside, it's almost impossible to believe that mm. could be true. Mm. Is this going to get your podcast in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. Not unless, not unless the person you're talking about is me, <laughs> in which case... Actually, this is an intervention. <laughs> and the shift has got too big. <laughs> 50 followers. Oh, come on. It's at least 52. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we're sort of as human beings, we're such curious creatures in, in that sense. You know, we yeah. are, um, for all of our kind of modern belief that we are these. Rational, rational, uh, logical, intelligent creatures who do everything on purpose with like real intent um, and make rational, weighted decisions about everything that we do. Um, actually, we're we're driven by these pretty primal impulses, and and um, we all have this desire to belong. We have a desire mm. to matter. We have a mm. desire to fit in and to and to um, not be shunned. Yeah, um, and then some of us have experiences of life where they leave gaping holes in us as well. You know, whether it's we weren't popular at school, or our parents were this, or our you know uncle did that, or you know whatever those things that happen to us that kind of tear chunks out of us and, and leave us even more vulnerable. Mm. These spaces that become so compelling, um, you know, it, it's it's they're incredibly potent. So mm. the attachment in them becomes incredibly potent. And it, and it goes very deep. And so it's not just, you know, so like in your story in, in hospital, I think one of the challenges in the church space is that you take that story and then you layer on. So you take that kind of terrible mm. behavior mm. and then you layer on, as you say, not only is this like the behavior that's going on, this is what God wants and this is God's usually man for the for the time and for the hour. And so by serving this man, you're not just serving him, you're serving God. Um, which means God's going to be very disappointed in you if you let the team down. Um, yeah. And so those layers are part of why spiritual trauma takes on a particular kind of shape, I think. Spiritual abuse takes on a particular kind of shape that that has a kind of potency because for us, our faith, our spirituality is often the thing that is one of the, if not the most important thing to us. It's our spirituality, our faith um, is often the thing that reaches right into the depths of our of our heart. And so Especially when, in tandem with our community yeah. and our relationships and our circles yeah. of care. Yeah. Because all of these things are, you know, neutral, but they are they can have an immense capacity for good. Our, our our bodies and our emotions seek out places of care. They yeah. seek out um they seek out good forms of authority in the sense of people that, you know, will be able to, you know, help share wisdom with us mm. or make safe places mm. for us mm. or teach us things. Like all of these things are good impulses. Yes. But with a dark shadow side. 
yeah, and can get taken advantage of. And so um, very much we do need to find places of belonging and care, places where we can trust and communities where we matter. Um, but those, those, those things can be, um, can be twisted mm. and the shadow side becomes very painful. Mm. Um, you know, obviously we're talking about this. About survivor's bias just while we're... Yeah, yeah, on, yeah. yeah. Just, just really briefly, but there's this, this idea and, um, of survivor's bias, which is where uh, you ask and people within an organisation what their experience of something is and they will, they will tell you. Uh, but survivor's bias basically means that it's the people who have manageable experiences of something that will stay involved in it. And so it's all the people who are receiving particular benefits or are particularly invested in something that will be able, that will um, still be there to be asked, how is this working out for you? Aren't we all having a good time? Mm. Um, and the people who have been, you know, the cogs in the machine that have been burned out. And this is how a lot of these institutions work. They have a job to do, which requires so many components to do it. And as long as you can, replace the cogs as fast as they burn out or faster, um, then the thing can keep on going. And mm. so what's you're casting, you know, you're leaving a, a trail of bodies, um, but none of those bodies are there for the internal review of saying, so isn't everything going well? Yeah. <laughs> and somewhere 50 miles in the background, there's someone with a sword on their side going, uh, actually, it didn't work out that great. Yeah. They're an unbeliever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Um, uh, is, isn't this fantastic? Uh, mm. And so that is also a really compelling um, force within organisations that it's only the people who it's working out for uh, that are left to say, to evaluate how it's going yeah. or whether this is a good system. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that connects for me to the idea that kind of the the anecdote becomes the rule as well or like so so the the intern who actually survived and made it and became a big shot yeah. becomes the example now. Yeah. Um, because look, they did it. Mm. Uh, it's kind of, it's like an aversion of the American dream. Um, mm. Look at that one person who did it, therefore it's possible for all of us. Therefore, um, stop complaining because that person didn't complain and look where it got them. Yeah. Well, that person yeah. stuck it out, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. So... I suppose perhaps the last thing for this part of our conversation, um, and I think because there's more to talk about, lots more to talk about, mm. but I think um, one of the interesting things for me has been reflecting on how, you know, almost returning full circle back to this, there's no such thing as a perfect church idea. Um, I don't think anyone's actually expecting that. I don't think anyone's sitting down and going, we want all of these organizations to be perfect. Mm. Um, but we want all these organizations not to abuse people. Yeah, we want them to not to abuse people. That's right. <laughs> Maybe and, that could be a good minimum bar. <laughs> and, and and then it's it's and and it's not just and, and you see this in, in in fact you see this in in the the current two big things that are going on in kind of our world of megas, which is the Hillsong and the Arise. Um, is is it's not just the thing; it's the response to the thing. So it's not just that this thing happens, mm. um, which is kind of bad in the first instance. Let's say a, a staff member does something 
to a to a volunteer or you, that's that or coerces them or manipulates them or you know something something takes place. It's then the response of the institution, kind of like what we've been talking about, this kind of managing of dissent, that that adds the layers of trauma to the initial kind of experience. Yes. Um, and so whether that's the whether that's the woman who comes forward with a story about a pastor who you know um, maybe abused or harassed, mm. um, you've got that initial kind of trauma, but then you've got the layers of trauma as as the church essentially manages the situation. Um, with their PR firms and their, you know, all the kind of stuff. I mean, um, should we talk a little specifically about two ways in which this has been yeah, done? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so uh, I won't, you know, go through detailed accounts because you can find all these things online, but one is essentially to say mistakes were made but medication was involved. Yeah. Uh, as if the blame should really be on the medication mm. and the harm done was so obscure, you can't really tell how serious it was. Mm. Or if you know, were it was even serious or, or at all, or just someone you know being a bit sensitive, um, but no real accountability. You know, we are acknowledging something bad happened, but really we know it's not that bad because it wasn't that person's fault um, because they were on some medication. Mm. Um, so that's you know, so that's one again one way of diminishing responsibility and diminishing harm by obscuring what happened and then obscuring responsibility mm. by saying, you know, we're acknowledging something bad went wrong, but, you know, it wasn't really anyone's fault. It's kind of a victimless crime or, a, you know, criminalless crime uh, because the person wasn't in control because of these reasons, which is offensive and weak. Mm. Uh, and in the other situation, there's this thing that um, could be called ring fencing, which is essentially to take broad, broad spread systemic uh, harm that is being done and then isolate it to one particular department, zoom in on that and say, we acknowledge that something or some things have happened in this particular place which we feel so terrible about and we will get to the bottom of what happened. Um, and <laughs> we will find that what happened was there are a few bad apples doing bad things in an otherwise very good organisation. Yeah. And we feel terrible about the fact that we didn't see it and intervene and take responsibility for it. And we had really no idea, but we admit we are wrong. It was our job to see it. We should have seen it and stopped it. Um, but unfortunately these bad apples have done these bad things or this bad department has done this bad thing. And all the focus goes on there. Now what's actually happening is you're taking an organization wide culture, which is perpetuated by bullies by people who have behaved in particular ways, who have legitimised particular forms of leadership, who have modelled that form of leadership, who know exactly and everyone in the institution has seen it, even if they can't admit that that is what is happening, across the whole organisation and you're saying, look, look over there, a, a bad thing uh, for which you can apologise because you will not face the fact that the leadership structure is, is is based on coercion and yeah. on coercive people and people that are not fit to lead. Yes, like um, you don't, and this is the, the systems and the people type conversation again, mm. which is that you, you don't want to acknowledge that it's a systemic organisation-wide issue and that in fact 
your organization relies on this level of coercion and bullying to function mm. in the way that it does. Like it, it can't operate the way that it does without it. Mm. No and, one wants to acknowledge that. Right? Just to take one step further, yeah. uh, it is connected to an entire ecosystem of systems, uh, mm. of other churches and other organizations yep. that write on exactly the same platforms, exactly the same stories that will be told yes. across all of them because we know we've heard enough stories from people from different organizations saying, that's exactly like what happened to me. In fact, there's a race to the bottom in the comments threads of some of these discussions saying, you think that's bad? You should check out this church here. No, yeah. this one's way worse. I did this one here. And it's not just, again, even within these churches, it's not just a bad individual in yeah. an otherwise good system. It's actually an entire system of people acting in completely inappropriate ways because the system itself relies on that to be able to function. Yeah, and the amazing thing about that is that then those networks of those systems reinforce to you as some, you know, punter or volunteer mm. or staff member or whatever role you're playing within that. Well, not only do I look around at the people around me and they're all like, woohoo, great job, the best. Um, I also look at, I go to these conferences where all these other people are having are doing the same thing and and look at how my leader is valued and esteemed in all of these other places and all of, you know, and so you're a part of, not just this thing, but this global network of, of yeah. movements that keep reinforcing that kind of culture. And so one of the reasons why you want to ring fence and say it's the problem of that department over there and a few bad people mm. or a few people who did some bad things and or shouldn't have been trusted with that much responsibility or something. You, you just want to do that because otherwise you have to actually look in the face and acknowledge the fact that this entire system mm. is set up not just with the collateral damage of abusing people, but I think is set up in a way that it requires the abuse of people in order to keep being what it is. Yeah. And and people don't want to people don't want to confront that. Understandably well, perhaps, because their their all their it's success and life and significance and purpose is comes from that system. But that's ultimately the the the, the core of it, I think. And, and and implicitly is said we can't change the world if we mm. stop yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, God, God will not be able to move. Yeah, if we st if we stop running people over with steamrollers, <laughs> it's just what we have to do. It's the way God moves. <laughs> uh, and if we stop this, and this is the only good thing that God's doing in the world, because that's one of the other sub narratives, mm. right? Mm. Going like you know, we used to be pathetic, and now we're great. And look at all those other pathetic. I mean, I think uh, someone we know. <laughs> <laughs> who said all churches under what seventy five need to be shut down because they're they're wastes of resources? Yes. Um, that that if we go back to that, then God stops doing things in the world, and surely it's not worth that, right? So yeah, this is um, we're going to have another conversation, and um, perhaps that's where we'll pick up the convo. Is is even coming back to some of that stuff you're talking about about Joshua and Canaan, um, the intersections of this kind of this is the way God moves, uh, fused with colonization, fused with kind of empire, fused mm -hmm. with um, saving people from eternal damnation. And I yep. mean, at the end of the day, what's a few what's a few hurt people if we've saved people from eternal suffering in hell? Mm -hmm. um, 
there's a bunch of stuff stuff there that maybe we'll we'll pick up on next time and then see where that conversation takes us and and, and keep unfolding this. Yeah. Can, can I just say one thing to close yeah, is, is that the tone of this conversation in many ways is quite jovial because sometimes laughing about something is the only way to, to not cry. Yes. About it. And um for those who have been victims of these systems, um, for people who have been terribly wounded and hurt and violated. Um, and, and that goes for people who were in systems that I made, that I participated mm. in personally. Um, I want you to know that this isn't actually a joke. Um, and I've cried a lot this week thinking about um, just the trail of destruction and the people's stories that have not yet been heard or believed or witnessed, the people who will not recover, the people who, for whom uh, any kind of faith journey um, isn't a possibility anymore, for whom God and the system that they served were too intertwined, which I totally understand. Um, and even though in this we have kind of lightheartedly discussed some of the stuff because it's so absurd that there's actually nothing funny about it. And, um, and yeah, it, it's, I'm just, I'm really deeply grieved about this this week and I don't cry particularly easily, um, because of my own dysfunction, but I've cried a lot this week. Um, and yeah, your stories are worth believing and, um, and this stuff is, is, is real and serious and should be treated incredibly kindly. Yeah. Indeed. It's a um it's a real thing to kind of carry these stories inside you. Mm. And you know, as we've talked about plenty, to have been both kind of victims of it and participators in it. Mm. And then to to see and to hear the stories of others and know that we helped build systems like this mm-hmm. and then also that that we we now sit kind of trying to find a better way mm. um and yeah the, the sometimes sometimes the stories are so absurd and sometimes the stories are so hard that laughter feels like the um mm. only way the only way to process but um but yeah i'm glad you said that thank you so there you go that's our chat, at least the first of our chats. And I'll be talking to Shane again in the next few days as we continue to work out this in conversation together. Um, just a reminder again, you can email us at feedback at intheshift.com and we'd love to hear from you, a story, a comment, a question, a concern, whatever you'd like. And thanks as always to Rhys Michel for his audiological massaging of this recording for your ears. Until next time.